Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today are South Carolina author Mary Alice Monroe and naturalist in residence Rudy Mankey. He's naturalist in residence at USC. We're going to be talking about South Carolina's coastal plain, shorebirds, and the environment. And we're also going to talk about Mary Alice Monroe's newest book, Beach House for Rent. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. So Mary Alice and Rudy, both of you, welcome back to the journal. Thank you. It's good to be here. Mary Alice, first of all, I've got to congratulate you. Let our listeners know that you have just been elected to the South Carolina Academy of Authors. Yes, it's a great honor. It's It's a great honor and richly, richly deserved. Thank you. And Rudy, you should you should say you're naturalist in residence for the state of South Carolina, not just for the University of South Carolina. But, <laughs> True. Uh, you 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 you're somebody who needs no introduction, my friend. Well, you're kind to say that. I've had fun doing what I love to do, as I think you would say that yes, you have I fun agree. doing what you love to do. Um, started with the state museum, and our office was right next to ETV, and things took off from there. So. <laughs> It's been a lot of fun doing what I love, and other people enjoy it, too, and that's icing on the cake. Well, we're going to be talking uh, about a wide range of subjects today, but in particular about not just your work, Mary Alice, but the natural world, right. if you will. And on June the 15th, you two are going to be in Spartanburg uh, for a benefit for the ETV endowment. It is open to the public if you're interested And Hub City will be involved with this project as well as the endowment. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a great conversation, and I'm honored to be there with Rudy Menke. It's going to be a lot of – we're kindred spirits. It should be fun, and I I don't know what we'll be talking about specifically, and we'll open the floor for questions. So I think Mm -hmm. that'll add to the mix a little bit. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, first of all, Mary Alice, let's talk about – Shorebirds, which are really key to the whole story of Beach House for Rents about. You've dealt with turtles. You've dealt mm-hmm. with the, uh, another endangered species, the shrimpers of yes, <laughs> the shrimpers of McClellanville. Mm. And by the way, that was one of my thank you one of my favorites. I shouldn't pick out a favorite there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because the beach house, I think, is if you ask most of my readers which is their favorite, they'll say the beach house. So I think it's because it was the first book. That was different for me. It was a decision on my part to write a story that would bring to my readers some essential problem or alert them to a, a species that's in trouble. Not through preaching, because I'm a, I'm a storyteller, but through the power of story. So my readers don't come to my books. Um, they don't come to Mary Alice Monroe for the summer to read a book about shorebirds or turtles. They come for the story, for the the dynamics of a family relationships, the ups and downs. But when they close that book, they know they've read something and it's a bonus. And I found my readers really love to learn something. And I want, if you call it a beach read, that's fine because I want my readers on the beach (laughs) reading that book because they're going to see the dolphins and the turtles and the shorebirds. But in this particular book, Beach House for Rent, it's the turtles are there because it's a beach house continuance. But the backdrop for this book is the shorebirds, which are facing a huge decline in population now, well, 70%. Okay, well, that's, that's sort of what I'd, li- I'd like to get into. You know, Those of us who grew up in the South, so many things are missing from the childhood environment. Last night, I saw two fireflies in my backyard. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, you used to almost have to swat them away and we all we, we caught them in a jar, a mayonnaise jar, put a top on it, punched some holes in them, and, mm. and uh, we were supposed to let them go before we went to bed. But now, now I don't know. My grandchildren have never been able to chase fireflies Fire flies, because yeah. there are not enough of them. And this is changing. Well, I think everyone expects to see um, shorebirds when they go to the beach. They may not be able to name them. I'll bet they don't know the difference. You know, there's a difference between what we call shorebirds. There's actually waterbirds, you know, as Rudy knows, Mm -hmm. the seabirds, the great old pelican, and the shorebirds, the short, smaller little birds that you see poking in the mud or sand and playing tag with the waves, and the wading birds, which we all love to see, the egrets. But... I think we, the most people lop them together as just shorebirds. 
but they're in trouble. You may not always see them at the beach with the precipitous decline. So we're really talking about sandpipers. And And sandpipers, plovers, oyster catchers. The list is long. I mean, you can really, and when you say (laughs) sandpipers, they're just a great diversity of uh, species. And one of the things that I've noticed in my life in South Carolina is that I've come to miss those things that we've already been referring to, that the numbers used to be higher in almost every species, really, that uh, that uh, that I love, and um, there are connections in the natural world. We're aware of that, but sometimes not as aware as maybe we ought to be. Um, I love the uh, John Muir quote. You know, when you try to touch one thing by itself, you find it hitched to everything in the universe. Well, yes. I, I grew up knowing about that even when I was a kid growing up in Spartanburg. Those connections are important. We've changed habitats pretty drastically in South Carolina. And uh, it's frustrating, but I see more of an interest now in the environment than I've ever seen in my life, and I think that's going to bode well for us. I certainly hope so. It's our hope for the future. And I think the word that I just quickened to that you just said was connection. Well, that's the way and the that world is. is. It. It's yeah. all about connection. Naturalists, really, it's fun. I think everybody's a naturalist to one degree or another because our brain is wired that way. We're curious about the world. I agree, but I, I honestly, one of the things that inspired me to write, um, sort of the why of my writing, was that I feel there's a serious disconnect between so many people today and what is outside. They see the world uh, and nature through glass. They're observers. Mm-hmm. And they feel that a disquiet because they want to get out there. They want to learn more. But there's that disconnect that, or even a fear, perhaps, of what's wild. And our grandfathers used to look in the sky and be able to name, oh, that's a, a red-tailed hawk. Now so many people look up and just know it's a big bird. They can't, or the shorebirds, it's just a, it's, they're all gulls or pelicans. Mm-hmm. But you know what I'm saying? That, that knowledge, that intimate involvement. And I believe they want to know. Well, I think I think the wanting to know is the innate curiosity. I, I think so. everybody has it. There's no doubt about it. Our brain is wired that way. It's a survival skill, a survival uh, thing for us as a species. You know that innate curiosity. But I teach at the University of South Carolina, and I can tell you, in my students, that innate curiosity is often latent. Mm. It's right under the skin. So it is our job, as teachers or professors or parents or grandparents to develop the latent curiosity in other Absolutely. people. I tell that to teachers all the time because it's it's the way it is. But that innate curiosity is there. And once you scratch the surface and bring it to the surface, and that's what Nature Scene did for years for this network and for me, and Nature Notes now, I mean, the response is, is unbelievable. I can't tell you how excited I get hearing you say that. No, that's the why I write my books. Yeah, I well, want people to, to read a book that... Um, they're reading for pleasure, for story, but then all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, because they now are intimately, con- they themselves have entered my story world. They feel it. It's all about emotion, and they are connected. And once they care, once they have knowledge, then they become the heroes and act, and it's all about action. I call my books Calls for Action, and I really think that's what they are. You, you get involved, you care. And make a difference. Well, I Can think you, make a difference. yeah, and and we need to give people an understanding of mm-hmm. the world and an appreciation for it that changes their perspective, and then they'll do what they need to do. I mean, I've found I that to that. be true, and I see that more now um, than ever before. And I think that, like I said, is going to bode well for us. But the world is changing, and we are a part of that change. And uh, if we know the intricate connections, maybe we won't pull them apart Absolutely. as much as we've done in the past. I want to get back to the shorebirds. And you talked about habitat and, and declining numbers. I've been going to the South Carolina shore since 1965. Uh, it used to be when you walked along the beach at Garden City or Pauley's, lots of sand crabs you know, the little things that borrow, mm-hmm. and not a fiddler crab I'm talking about. Right. I don't even see those anymore. And I'm sure that's those and periwinkles were things that... They're searching for to eat. Yes. And what happened, particularly after Hugo, so a lot of those things just seem to not come back. 
Well, it's frustrating a little bit when you think about changing beaches so we have sand where we want it. Renourishment of beaches is something that's always an exciting thing to think about um, and frustrating a little bit. Uh, I've always, as a naturalist, thought that maybe we should let nature make the decisions of where beaches are, uh, not us. And and that's a hard thing and yet a, a wonderful thing in my mind's eye. When, when humans make decisions, sometimes they, they make decisions that uh, mess up some of those wonderful connections without even knowingly doing that. It's not that we do it on purpose. So I think when you fiddle with the most dynamic part of the state, which is the coast, I mean, there's no question Very about dynamic. that, changing all the time. I mean, it's been that way for a long, mm-hmm. long, long, long time. The lower half of the state used to be, you know, under an ocean. <laughs> so it's, think... it's, it's interesting to think about how resilient nature is because obviously she is. And it, the nature doesn't throw up her hands and walk away. The species, if they're lost, will be replaced by other species, and I know that. But when you come up with this diverse natural world and start to fiddle with it, it's, it's really frightening to people who care about those connections. That's what naturalists talk about. What is it? And how does it fit into the rest of the world? And those connections are more important than most people know, but they're invisible to a lot of people. And I think we're supposed to, with words or in a book or leading a walk or doing a television show, we're supposed to sort of make the invisible things visible, the connections visible. And all of a sudden, when people see that and get their perspectives changed, there's a better chance at making a difference in protecting. And I think and that's And I think important. that's the key word is protection because a lot of the problems that are facing shorebirds, for example, are man-made. One, of course, is, well, climate change as a whole is rising, the rising sea levels and changing the face of the, um, the coast. But also plastics, as we, as we all know and have been hearing about so much in the news, it's a huge problem facing all marine life. And with the degradation of plastics in the ocean, of course, micro particles will be consumed by all sea life and birds and us, too, and resulting health problems. Well, see, that's what I don't think people realize is that the food chain, eventually, those some of those plastics... It always goes to us. And this is where I think that human beings, the man-made aspect of what's going on out there and in, in, in injuring species is something that each of us can do even in our own sphere. You know, I think we hear a huge, we talk about climate change and people sometimes become overwhelmed. I think they, they, they're lured into a, a state of, um, I, I can't do anything. It's, I'm just, what can I do? I'm just going to give up. But I feel that with knowledge and with a concern, they can learn to do what my daddy used to tell me. I, I was always an activist. In my, I used to get very upset in the 60s and 70s when there was, everyone was roused. And he'd say, Mary Alice, just light one candle. And I'd be, oh, daddy, you don't know anything. You're so... Blase. You know, I was young and full of fire. And now that I'm of a certain age, I've come to realize how wise, like Mark Twain said, how wise my father really was. And we can make a difference in our own backyard, on our beach. It isn't, I live on Isle of Palms, but it's not my beach. It's our beach that we share with migrating species. So light one candle. There's just little things you can do like... Um, throw away your trash, your plastics. Um, don't bring plastic, leave plastics at the beach. Don't release balloons by the coast. Um, that de- balloon will deflate and turtles will think it's a jellyfish and it'll become more plastic. You know, if people read Beach House for Rent and only do one thing, I've done my job. Don't let your dogs chase shorebirds resting on the beach. The Audubon Society has this program, Let Them Rest, Let Them Nest. People, if they knew that these migrating species were just stopping by like a way station to gorge themselves for a while, some of them having flown all the way from the Arctic, some 18,000 miles. Ar- name, name several. The so. red knots, for example. The, they come from the Ar- Arctic. Um, they come to especially from Delaware and here to feast on horseshoe crab eggs. And then off they go. They don't stay. But this is an important way station. Do they go back or they go further south? They go from south to South America. They nest there. And then we have a lot that nest right here on our 
beaches. And they have the nests up on the dunes. And we say, if you hear a bird squawking while you come by, that's why we say, don't walk on the dunes. Stand back. Because if that bird flies off and leaves its eggs or its young chicks, they could die in a very short amount of time. So there's little things that we can do. And I, again, don't let your dogs or grandchildren, and my grandchildren included, chase the birds when they're resting on the beach because, you know what I call it? It's akin to being in a food court and having the fire alarm go off. (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. They need that food. They need to gain weight. They need to move forward to to migrate. Well, since, again, since I've been going to the beaches here for more than 50 years, a lot of things have changed. For example, there are beaches, Edisto, Pauly's, your dog better be on a leash in fact, sometimes they don't even want it on the beach at certain certain times of the day. The lights, mm, for the, governing right. lights for the for the turtles, don't dig big holes. Or if you thank build, you for saying that. <laughs> if you big if you build a sandcastle during the day, cover it up. Cover you, it up. All of those are little things that we each can do when we go to the beach because we all share the beach. It's our beach. It's that idea that we. We take care of each other, including the species that are dependent on the beaches. Yeah, I think that's uh, one other thing that's important that uh, sometimes it's hard for people to wrap their mind around. We're we're a part of that natural system. It's not Mm -hmm. nature over there and humans over here. It's, you know, we're a part of that same system. It it, it hurts me sometimes to talk about humans and nature. The atoms in our body, you know, have come from collapsing stars like everything else's atoms. We get energy from a star 93 million miles away. We can't make our own food as as animals. So if it wasn't for plants, if that connection wasn't there, we wouldn't be here talking to each other. Those kinds of connections are terribly important. Mm -hmm. But... One of the things, remember years ago, years ago now, when we were talking a lot about protecting the environment for the first time, there was this one little line about think globally, act locally. You can make a difference. One person can make a difference. I've believed that all of my life. That's what I was taught. I I still believe that. But when you get a group of people who are wanting to make a difference, every now and then, this is the way I say it, you can make magic. You can really make a big difference. And and I think that's why local communities are important. I think that's why people in uh, on Sullivan's Island or uh, Edisto Island or wherever, uh, when you come together as a group, wow, you know, it's it's pretty incredible. But I that caring that. about the environment mm-hmm. is is something that needs to be taught. And uh, I've done it my way. You You do it your way. I don't really read a lot of non I mean a lot of fiction because I'm a nonfiction guy, but it's it's just really funny. The best fiction reads like nonfiction and and that means it includes uh, uh, some understanding of the environment in which these human beings are living. Well I think what you're saying and is is what I absolutely try to do and it's the I depend on the power of story Mm-hmm. To reveal too. that information, yeah. and you do in your nature notes, you're telling, you're always telling stories. That's it's the, a parable, right? That's the way it is. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the way we we our brain works. You want to have a name for something, and then you know how does it fit into the rest of the world? Yes, is the story, and, uh, and I use objects, and you use pen and paper. That's and, right, and, and people feel then they they, they identify, and yeah. then they care once they have the knowledge, and the emotion component. Yeah then they care. And I believe um, I've gotten so many letters from readers and with the turtle teams in particular, you know, where they have read and became involved by becoming a volunteer, by donating their time or money to these worthy organizations. They're making a difference. They're voting. Mm -hmm. It's becoming active in your community to make a difference, even in your own backyard. And that's recycling, right? That's well, simple. Well, that, that is. And, of course, we need to plant Joe Pye weed. I have Joe Pye weed in my garden. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> For the butterflies, don't spray. I mean, we could, the list goes on and on. Well, we need Joe Pye weed to, for, to feed the monarchs. Yes, we do. At the, exactly. So, Rudy, I, I couldn't help but think when you said, you know, messing with Mother Nature and you mentioned beach nourishment. Historically, we've been doing that in South Carolina since 1670. Yeah. 
when you created the rice fields, there's a whole book of the laws of South Carolina on cuts, and that is linking a creek with another creek oh, or yeah. a river. Absolutely. And how that changes. Mm. It was development, and there's nothing wrong with development, but in the cut, they made those cuts so they could get their product to, the, to Charleston right. more easily instead of having to go out, you know, an early inland waterway, <laughs> if you would. Yeah, well, when you think about it, see, this is one thing that really has always frustrated me a bit about education, and that is that you have different disciplines, <laughs> and very rarely do professors, you know, who are teaching history talk with somebody who's really interested in natural history or philosophy or whatever. I just have always understood that everything is connected to everything else, and that includes this, these disciplines. Uh, it would be great if you could actually, in a museum, talk about history, natural history, art, science in one place rather than a science floor and the rest. And it's very hard to do that. But when you see the way humans have had an effect on the world, and yet, I mean, we, we, we emphasize the negatives, but I mean, there's some very interesting positives here. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the species that we have in our state are doing better here because of people who hunt and right. fish, for right. instance. And a lot of times you say, what? How can that be? Well, th- there's evidence that for land. that. Yes. They, they care. They take pride in, in the place where they hunt or they fish. But, but sometimes we become overly successful, for example, the, with the deer population. Exactly. <laughs> and, and again, it, it's interesting to think about what we're doing long term. I think a lot of times we just think very short term. And the other thing that frustrates me, and this is just a personal frustration, is that unless we as human beings develop a genuine interest in something other than just ourselves, then we are the most dangerous creature on the face of the earth. And it's embarrassing to be a member of that species. We have to care genuinely. This is what, in my opinion, makes us human is that genuine interest in something other than just ourselves. Every other animal we're talking about has an interest in me, 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 me. We need to turn that around. And and one of the best ways to do that is to realize that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And no time more so than right now in our history. Yeah, but I mean, I think that would have been good at at any time. Point At any time, time, but now I think time is time is of the essence right now, and I really believe that we can affect change. I I honestly do believe it that, and I, I've seen it happen too many times with readers when they when they thank me for it for bringing when they picked up the book. Perhaps they didn't have any intention of learning about something, but they loved that aspect, and then they went on to learn more. And I think the more you learn, the more you share, the more you become part of this whole collective group, and we can affect change. And I I'm concerned that species like the pelican, for example, which talk about comeback kids, and the pelican is a poster child for the comeback kid, who since the DDT in the 60s to today where the numbers have come back, but now they're being threatened again by plastics. And you look at that and you think, my goodness, here we go again. When I was growing up on the shores of Mobile Bay, there were no pelicans. Now, they're everywhere. The bombardiers on patrol. We love them, <laughs> you know. Um, all right. You mentioned something in Beach House for Rent, and that is you bring up the subject of ecotourism. And I think sometimes that, that may be informing people it's, it's a double-edged sword, just like heritage tourism. Everybody wants to go to a particular site, and then the next thing you know, They've it's damaged altered the, the environment. It's, it's altered the environment. Well, it's a reality that the numbers, the, the population increase in the southeast corridor is, is just exponential and will continue to grow. Um, I, I'm, I live on Isla Palms, and I know our beaches are facing huge issues with, with the influx of people coming in in the summer. And it, it's not, we have new parking restrictions, for example, which I know is going to raise the ire of a lot of people. But they have to realize it's really a population issue. The islands have to control for fire, for police, for cleanliness. This is not even speaking of management of wildlife and nature. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, I think it's a dilemma that's continuing. We need to pause for a moment, folks, and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and my guests today are Mary Alice Monroe and Rudy Mankey, and we're talking about the environment, Mary Alice's new book, Beach House for Rent, and 
just about anything else you want to. Now, let's let's continue with this this idea. I, I do want you specifically. One of your characters is running tours and that kind of thing. Yes, Rudy, how do you react to those? eco-tours? Well, I think eco-tourism, you know, we've been talking about this for years in South Carolina, and I think that that usually it works really well. But there is a a frustration sometimes. Uh, The old phrase is, you know, kill the goose that laid the golden egg. I mean, you don't want to trample over the orchids to get to see the birds. Wouldn't it be nice if you moved (laughs) around? You know, that kind of thing. I like that broad-based and this is the emphasis now in ecotourism, where you're not dealing with birds, just birds. You're dealing with the habitat and the environment as a whole. And we're producing more people that are that broad-based. And that's really what a naturalist does. I mean, you don't zero in on one species or, or one group of animals. You do animals, plants, and geology, and all the, the it's rest. All connected. The connections are best seen when you have a really broad view. And I think ecotourism allows uh, folks with not a lot of, of dollars in their pocket to lead people out, give them good information, and make a living at it. And I think that, in a sense, is, is a positive thing. But you've got to always be you know, careful that you don't destroy that special thing that you want to see. You don't go to a rookery when there are birds on nests mm-hmm. and young in the nest and dislodge them from their normal behavior. You want to stand back and observe from a distance. And if you know that, then you're not going to get any closer. Absolutely. You just carry a good pair of binoculars with you. There, there are all sorts of things that are available now uh, that when I was a kid growing up was not available as far as basic information about how to observe and what to do and what not to do. We're more aware. Uh, and again, if we care about the system of which we're a part, then that's going to keep a lot of negative things from happening. And, and I think this, here's my take. I think when you care genuinely about this wonderful world of which we're a part, It enriches your life in ways that are more important than just naming things and checking off lists. Oh, but naming things is so important. Of course it is, but there's something more important than that, and that is to realize these connections are there. And with these little individuals removed, then this system is not going to work as well as it has. The key to that, though, Rudy, is, is caring. That is the key. And absolutely, you and I are in total agreement about once you care, you care about the connections with everything. That's the only way it works. It's getting people to care. And I've heard so many people tell me that they they felt this disconnect. They didn't know what those things were out there. And when they read a sign that says, don't feed the wild dolphins, because they see the dolphin in the water and they want to touch the dolphin, get close to it. It's their nature. It's our nature to get close. Let me feed it because they don't understand natural consequences. If they knew the birds were nesting or the birds were resting from an 18,000-mile journey, they would say, oh, my goodness, I don't want to disturb them. I think that's all about knowledge is power and to make them care. You, you both talked about people want to understand, but in the last two or three weeks, there's been an issue at the Congaree National Park. The fireflies are numerous down there. But there's a problem with how people, oh, this is a big thing, they go down there. And then they start trying to take flash pictures and yes. uh, go off the path. I mean, it's it's really sad. And maybe it's because they didn't, as children, didn't, you know, fireflies are so unusual. The other thing I miss, where are the roly-polies? Well, they're around, but they're not very common in, in hot as fire weather and dry weather because they're crustaceans and they need, you know, to have the water on the gills. I see them in my backyard. They're doing pretty well, but populations vary. And they, you know, we've had some very interesting winters that weren't actually, you know, winters. They've been warmer. There've been animals that have made it. Used to be in South Carolina, we would have cold and then it would warm up, and these little insects mainly, but other creatures, would come out, and then there'd be that one more whack of cold, and that would cut down on 
mosquito population, say, in the summer. Well, that hasn't happened for the last past couple of years. Nature is very resilient. The last shows we did were in Chernobyl. If you want to see a mess of human <laughs> mistakes, mm-hmm. that's a place to go. But nature is resilient. I mean, it wasn't flat as a pancake and like a war zone. The, the, the birds were there, the snakes were there, or whatever. And now, of course, the ones that were there when the radioactive volcano went off, so to speak, were killed immediately. But nature is very resilient. Uh, and, and that's something that's, that's worth mentioning, too, um, here. And I, I think... But it will affect change in what, nature, yeah. what oh, we no, know no. as nature. But change happens all the time. This is one of those things that's very interesting. I think the, the, the fear in a lot of people right now about what's happening in the natural world is not that, that changes are occurring. It's the rate of change. Absolutely. This is what I think is, is more frightening. And I remember the Audubon Society years ago had a wonderful little button, and I still have mine somewhere. It says, the species you save may be your own. Oh, <laughs> and I like that. It, it reminds you that you're a part of that that system you were talking about DDT and, and you know egg thickness of eggs for osprey mm-hmm. and for other birds, DDT use heavy use affects human beings right. too. I mean, the, the thing that's strange about the coast and this is a great idea we ought to try this instead of having seafood restaurants we ought to call them what they really are marsh food restaurants <laughs> because if it were not for those salt marshes we wouldn't have. What we're feeding right. on, what we're recycling in those restaurants, there, that connection with the marsh is something that people, you know, sometimes don't see. No. I love to point out connections. And once you change people's perspectives on things, you have a better chance for them to make better decisions. And we need to and do that. that's the key, isn't it? That's important, yeah. Well, one of your hobby horses used to be, Rudy, about the uh, non-native species that people bring in and Mm -hmm. how they, you know, on on the coast, the Chinese talent tree. Yes. Neil and I just got back from wonderful two weeks in in southern France and along the the Midi Canal. There's that cane that they now, that grows everywhere along the coast that's... Phragmites. Yes. Yeah, the giant reed. Yes, somebody brought it in... One of the reeds. ...to France. Yeah. Well, all the colonial empires did. I mean, they traded all this stuff around. Sure. And it's become, in southern France, it's become a pest along the waterways. Um, Well, you know what the most common tree in Chernobyl is right now? Oh, no. In in all of these exclusion zone sites? They call it American maple. It's our box elder. It's a tree that we have all over the state of South Carolina, along river areas, and out into the western U.S. It's native here. They took it over, planted it, and now (laughs) it's doing better than... Than species that are native there with radionuclides. Now, who would have ever thought that? They That's call it American maple. We saw it with fruit on it in, in the main street of Chernobyl, and it was funny. just it it was shocking a little bit. It so, is a small planet when you put it into that perspective. Human beings have a tendency to fiddle with things. That's our brain again. I know is wired that way, but we we. We, we rearrange the world. And sometimes, often, more often than not, it's maybe not the best thing. We rearrange the world in, in South Carolina. We've, we've done that. Non-native species, and many of them have stayed right where we put them. Mm-hmm. Others have become invasive species. But, but that's happening in Europe. Used to be. It's really funny. When I was a kid, when we were talking about the Bering Land Bridge and creatures coming from Asia to America, for some reason, I thought that maybe there was a one-way sign that the animals were coming from Asia to America, never realizing they were going that they were going too. the other way, too. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's, again, a perspective change thing. And, and I had a professor, and this is want to change a perspective. We were asking, talking about biogeography, why, you know, why plants and animals are distributed as they are, how it came to be. And this guy came into class and said, it's very simple. Every species is everywhere in the world unless one of three things happened. First, it couldn't get there. That made sense. Secondly, after it got there, it couldn't survive there for whatever reason. Uh, that makes sense. Or thirdly, after it got there over time, it became modified into something else. But every species is everywhere unless one of those three things happened. I started thinking about that. Distribution of plants in my backyard. Animals in my backyard. Roly-polies in my ba- Have a lot to do with these little microhabitats in my backyard. You can think about it worldwide, but it's going on in your backyard, too. And if you slow people down 
and show them that, that enriches their lives, and that means that they're going to think in a different from a different perspective. And going it's, back to the you backyard. sneak up on people. You're right. I don't throw rocks mm-hmm. at people. I've never done that. I've just talked about what it is and tell you a story. And, and that worked for me story. with my grandmother. And that works for me in the way mm-hmm. I'm doing business, and you're doing the As same it has thing for in generations. a different way. Yeah, sure. That's that's the way our mind is. Christ understood that when he did the parables. You know, it's 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 a teaching of a moral truth and also a, a wisdom that's handed down. And I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a wonderful thing. That's why that's why our, this interest in nature is so is is basically it's therapeutic. And, I also uh, think that just getting them outdoors. This is what I do. I always encourage people: just get past the glass, walk outside, yeah. feel the wind on your face. You know, whether you're in the grass in your toes or you're lucky enough to look out at the ocean. Or that's why do people come to water? They come to water because we now know through research that it actually does contribute to your well-being. You you feel a vastness, and I think you feel part of something bigger than yourself. And you take that in, and it helps you persevere with your day. Sadly, I think the history of humankind has been not to want to coexist with nature, but to control nature. That has been true, especially in, I think, the West. But um, with enlightenment, with the, I figure if you light a candle and I light a candle and Rudy lights a candle, that candle shines brighter and brighter until we have enlightenment. But that is true that, that human beings have uh, wanted to dominate. We're the top of the heap. Therefore, we can do as we please. And, and that's a, a very frustrating and frightening thing. And I think it goes back to that notion of being a part of something a part of the natural world, mm. not separate from it, and having some responsibility because we're the only species that I know of that really understands the intricate connections, and yet we're the ones that could potentially damage those connections most rapidly. It's It seems incongruous, but it, it, it but is that will. way. It's will and knowledge <clears throat> and caring. It's what you choose to do. And to believe you can make a difference. And I think we, when when Europeans came to America, they came with this man against the wilderness notion, mm-hmm. pioneer spirit, survival, whatever. You got to take over anything in the way. Let's get it out of the way. So black bears, whack them. Long tail cats in South Carolina, get them out of here. They were, you know, Lawson called them tigers, T Y G E R S, and we've still got a tiger river because of that. But that that animal is not here anymore. And then, of course, the human beings that were here. <laughs> I mean, they couldn't be the same as Europeans, right? So they, they're they part of the wilds to be overcome. And uh, that just, it, it, it really frustrates me when I think about some of those kinds of notions that that uh, even in our species, it's taken us a long time to realize that, that there was one human species, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the early naturalists who came up with, who proved it scientifically, lived in Charleston, South Carolina, the Reverend John Backman. Yes. And, I mean, he was the one that wrote in, what, 1850, that little unity of... Of human he, life, he, and he right. ran and he ran up against all the eggheads from the Ivy League, Ag- Louis Agassiz, and all of those oh, yeah. who, who said that no, no, they were they were separate. Everything was separate. And he was correct. And 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 really, I know looking back on it, you'd think, what? I don't know that everybody is convinced of that even to this very day. But he proved it scientifically. Mm-hmm. He didn't make a religious argument. That's what I think mm-hmm. science can do in a very wonderful way. And I think. I'm, I'm, I think a naturalist like myself, and again, like I say, everybody is a naturalist to one degree or another. Right. When you can see the broad view and the long-term view, then you're going to make better decisions about your life. And if you're in a position of leadership, other people's lives too. And I've always thought that when people make decisions, it should be in the best interest of the, of the largest number of people right. for the longest period of time. And when I say that, I'm, I'm saying the environment because that's what's in the best interest of the largest number of people for the longest period of time. And it Would is, that it were so, yes. but and, it but is see, not. But see, Rudy, you're now sounding like a historian. I know. Because but you've it, got... I'm, no, I'm serious. I'm not. And if you don't know the history, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. <laughs> Absolutely. Humans love to do that. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they love to reinvent the wheel. But, but you're I right. Think, I, I think, I, and thank you for saying that, because I have always perceived myself as a bit of this, that, and the other. I, I feel like I am, to some degree, an historian. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a natural 
historian. I feel like I'm a poet. I've written a little poetry. I appreciate poetry. I love to read some fiction. I don't read a lot of it, to be perfectly honest, but the best stuff I read thrills me. I mean, it's changed my perspective. I like to look at a little bit of everything from the philosophical side or the religious side. I like that mix, and we need to do that more. And when you see those connections and realize we had nothing to do with putting them in place, but we're to be good stewards, I think that is a great place for us to be. And I I just want to jump in and say I think that's what we're of the same mind. And to my mind, I'm not preaching to the choir. How do you get a lot of that that sense of community, of being part of this environment, to people who are not ready to hear that or don't care to hear that. And there's a lot of them. And my feeling is is that it's innate, like you said, in us to be curious and to care. I believe that. But that's where a novel, which has been really a wondrous exploration for me over these many years, where a novel does bring in the cultural, the spiritual, the religious, the Mm -hmm. family. You bring that all together in the form of a story. And through that story, I can do what nonfiction can't. I can attract a whole readership that may spark to that idea Mm -hmm. and then become part of that uh, that one and it's just reaching out and making more connections in as many ways as we can and speaking of fiction rudy you really should be reading more Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, thank you he has a book so he i'm sure okay uh but but mary alice let's 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 pivot back to beach house for rent and this really is another wonderful South Carolina story, and the house is a character. Well, the beach house in particular, I think, well, you and I, Walter, have talked so many times about having homes that we love or grew up with, and it's a, it's a constant problem of how are we going to be able to maintain our homes on the beach or in the mountains with today's taxes and families spreading out. And this is a, a place of healing, this beach house, and... I actually created a character who rents the house, which many people to do people do today is rent their beach house. And she is someone with an anxiety disorder. And I, I know a lot of people today are facing anxiety. And she's not quite agoraphobic, but she has a difficult time going out. And I wrote about her because I wanted to represent through a character that disconnect, that not being able to go outside, seeing nature through a glass. And then Kara is someone my char- my readers will know very well from the original Beach House. Yes. And it's 10 years later, and she's 50 years old, and now she's facing a common dilemma of women that age, whether it's a transition of what's left. Am I, where's that passion I used to feel in my life? And then she realizes, oh, my God, I really have 20 to 30 years left. What do I want to do with that 20 to 30 years to make a difference? Well, thank goodness you didn't have her make a bucket list. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, we all have that. But I do feel like it's a time in a life when you do want to rediscover Um, It's like a second adolescence. What can I do now in this second phase of my life? Well, and she also is facing the dilemma of she has a very valuable piece of property Mm -hmm. that she's having difficulty keeping up. Yes, and that's a common problem for many people. She's got a really wicked brother. <laughs> He's been there. We've met. We've we met, all know that. Too. <laughs> we, we've met Palmer before, and he, he he would love to do nothing better than to knock it down and and to rebuild. Don't you love the old houses they call teardowns? I, I think that's just a horrible expression. But she's maintaining it because a place that you go to for years and years, the family has roots in, that has memories, good memories and stories to tell. It's a place of reconnection. Again, it's a place of healing. It's it's a sanctuary for families. And um, the Beach House is that for not only the Rutledge family, this historic family, but for the woman who comes with anxiety disorder, too. Um, she paints Shorebirds for postage stamps. And I, by the way, I was always curious how they chose art for postage stamps. And it's these two women together because of tragedy, um, helping one another, which I think women have been doing since the days of hunters and gatherers, or it's on the X chromosome, one of the two. <laughs> you also managed to get in there, not just the, the threat to the shorebirds, but 
the sanctuary in Charleston that rehabilitates birds. And let's talk about that for a few moments. Well, the Birds of Prey Center in Awanda has been, I've been there since the old days before they built a fabulous, magnificent new center, which I hope all the readers will go to and listeners. It's up in Awanda, and they are not taking on shorebirds, particular pelicans that Mary Pringle, who's brought me to the Birds of Prey Center as a volunteer years ago, now worked with me to bring pelicans in for re- for rehabilitation that were injured. Fishing line is one of the problems. Fishing line, if you're in Florida, for example, they're saying that up to 90% of some of the birds in their rehab centers are there because of cast-off fishing line. Um, they get entangled, if you, and, and pelicans have skin that's sort of like bubble wrap. So if it's pierced, it's very difficult to heal. There's therapy. But that and six-pack plastic getting caught around their necks mm-hmm. And just general carelessness that is man-made, mm-hmm. that is, is causing problems. But also juvenile pelicans sometimes just have failure to thrive. They may be a late nester. Yeah. They, they're flock animals. They, they need to be a part of a flock to, to learn how to hunt and forage and fly. So if they're left behind for one reason or another, they will die, so they're brought in. And many of those, even despite the best efforts, don't survive. Yeah. The center, it's a nonprofit. The Birds of Prey Center, yes. the Avian Conservation Center is the formal name now. But it is, again, a lot of volunteers and they're dependent on donations. And this is, again, like Rudy was saying, where we can make a difference. We yeah. get involved in our communities. If you can't volunteer, make a donation. A small donation makes a difference. The Audubon Society is doing great work with the Let Them Rest, Let Them Nest program, the Shorebird Steward program. These are people who are so devoted, who work day in and day out. The South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, in particular Felicia Sanders, was so helpful, and Al Seegers, you know, to help me be sure I get everything accurate in my books. Um, They need the support of the public. Okay. And the book is coming out on June twentieth, June nineteenth, actually. Our event is June fifteenth, a few days before, and it's um, it's the last of the series. For anyone who read the Beach House, this will have meaning. But if you've never read the Beach House, it's a standalone novel. Well, I was going to ask that because yes, uh, yes, I do know the characters. Including it means the a little more, I think. But you, you, it's my job as an author, an author to make sure that you don't have to have read all all the books. There is a TV series. Well, this very exciting. The Hallmark is making a Hallmark Hall of Fame film of The Beach House with Andy McDowell. And it it's, was talked about as a series, but it's going to be a Hallmark Hall of Fame, which I'm excited about because I've always loved that series. And it's destined or it's, it's programmed to be out Mother's Day in two, 2018. And that's... The Beach House, not The Beach House for Rent. The Beach House, which is um, the first of the series. Are, are they going to film it in South Carolina? That's my wish. You never know. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Well, that's exciting, too. Yeah, they'll be filming this summer, so they better hurry because the, the turtles are nesting. We're having a great year, by the way. Oh, and that just didn't happen. That's volunteers, I'm convinced, because we're looking at close to 30 years since the turtle teams were out on the beaches. And... You know, we have affected change in terms of making sure more of the hatchlings have actually reached the water. And this is 30 years, and we're having a great year. The numbers are increasing. And the new sea turtle hospital in the South Carolina Aquarium is just opened. So South Carolina cares about its wildlife, I'm very proud to say. Well, and and the whole program of being the turtle lady or the turtle gentleman has spread up and down the coast. Absolutely. Well, I've been there since the days of Sally Murphy back when she was, you know, fighting with the shrimpers to put turtle excluded devices on. And to see all this happen over the course of, you know, 15, 20 years is exciting. And I'm actually hoping that the Audubon Society can move forward with their program with shorebird stewards, which they're trying to group, get volunteers to protect the shorebirds. So good luck to them. All right. And on June 15th, you and Rudy are going to be up in Spartanburg, an event with Hub City and the ETV Endowment. And if anybody's interested, they can call 864-585-0102. And Rudy, what are you going to talk about? Well, I'll do the natural history side of the street, um, and you'll talk Uh, about books and 
fiction and I think the rest. And, and I think we blend. We'll, yeah, I think we will do kind of what we've done here and yet um, have more time for questions, which is great fun. Yes. And I always look forward to that. And it's just um, it's fun to take something you're excited about and pass it on to other people. And for me, it's really exciting to talk, to have the ability, you know, to sit here with Rudy Mankey, who's been doing this for years and years, and has made so, has made converts of so many people to see that we can um, just continue in this positive energy, this positive transferring of, of information to so many people. All right. I hate to tell you folks, but Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners? And Rudy, I'll start with you and then go to Mary Alice. We're a part of something bigger than ourselves. We're a part of the natural world, not separate from it. Let's be good stewards of it. It'll enrich your life. And really, this is such a good message. Why don't you pass it on to other people? And leapfrogging from that is the belief that with so much going on right now with with Facebook and the Internet and all the newspapers, we feel inundated. I feel now is the time to be positive, to take steps, to believe that you can make a difference with small steps in your own backyard, on the beach when you go, that you are a steward right now. This is our planet, our beach, our home. All right. Mary Alice Monroe and Rudy Mankey, I want to thank you both for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I did. I mean, having a conversation with Mary Alice Monroe and Rudy Mankey, folks I've known for years and had conversations separately with them, this was the first time I had them together. And most of the time, I just sat back and listened. The stories that both of them have to tell about the treasures of our South Carolina coast and the natural world of which we all in South Carolina are a part. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.